we come this morning, we're in Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter number 20, we read in chapter 19 to give us some context. Um, We've been in this study of the law for many sermons now, and we've considered the false views of legalism versus antinomianism. Uh, We've seen that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling while giving honor to God who is working in us to will and to do after His good pleasure. We have had a very brief overview of the whole Ten Commandments. We studied one Lord's Day on uh, this first commandment being played out in the Old Testament. But today let us consider the first commandment. Let us see how this... um, plays out how how God has written this and what context it's given and how it applies and there shall be three main things that we will consider the three being the God who lives in verse number one the God who liberates in verse number two and the God who legislates in verse number three we will consider these three main points they all have uh, subheadings and things of that nature but that will be the main Thing if you're taking notes. In verse number 1 we see that the Bible says, And God spake all these words, saying, The God who lives, verse number 1. The God who lives. As we consider the Ten Commandments, one of the first things that we notice is that they reveal much to us about God, who God is. There's an abundance of the revelation of God contained within the law itself, as well as the events surrounding the giving of the law. The God of the Bible is transcendent over and above His creation. He's perfectly holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is angry towards sin. He is a jealous God. He is other than. He's other than us or holy than His creation, than the creature. And yet He condescends to us, His creature, brings love, grace, and mercy to His people. In considering this, my mind is brought to Isaiah chapter number 6, the vision of Isaiah where he said he saw the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple and the train filling the temple points to His Royalty, His sovereignty, His reign, His worth, His value, that it wasn't just a small train flowing behind Him, but His train filled the temple, showing us that God is infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy. Not only that, we have a picture in that of the angels that sang around Him, Holy, Holy, Holy. And there's a description of those that they had two wings that covered their face, Two wings that covered their feet, and with two wings they flew. These angels covered their face to veil this glorious God, so that these very angels that were created for the sole purpose of singing the praises of the God of heaven had to cover their face lest they gaze upon His glory and die. This is the holy God. There's no other attribute of God that is raised to this degree. When they sing holy, 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 it's as if they're saying holy, holier, holiest. That's this God. That's this God that we're reading about in the law. This is one of the attributes that's revealed about God. Look at the events of Exodus 19. 
We read the context. Uh, could a dead God do those things? Could a dead God fill the mountain with smoke and the thunderings and the fire? No, we see a revelation of the holy God that He is so holy and He's so righteous that we cannot come into His presence lest we die. And God spoke. If not enough to see that God spoke, consider, or if that's not enough to prove that He lives, consider the context near and dear to these people, to their hearts, near and dear to their experiences. They saw God bring ten plagues in judgment of the unbelieving Egyptians and to prove that the gods of the Egyptians were false. He brought them over the Red Sea on dry ground and the Egyptians that were pursuing after them that tried to follow, they died. In chapter 15, we see the song of praise as they've come through this, followed very quickly by groaning about water. And then God made sweet the waters of Morah that they could drink. God gave manna after the people grumbled for food. God provided water through a rock that Moses struck. God gave victory over Amalek and his people in the battle there as Moses lifted up the rod and God gave victory. We read all these things and then we're brought into chapter number 19 and we see what God did there. Surely these things are done by the God who lives There is a stark contrast here. The gods that they had spent 400 years around, these false Egyptian gods that they had seen the other people worshiping, they never spoke. They never did any great miracle. They never did anything. But this God, this God brought them out. This God brought them through. This God that we serve did many visible, wonderful deeds among the people. Surely this is the God that lives from the awful treatment of the Egyptians into the service of the living God. This is the God who speaks. This is the God who's speaking in this chapter. What a contrast. They could not save the false gods of the Egyptians. They were utterly powerless to stop the plagues. You saw very early on that the magicians even tried to mimic the plagues and act well our gods can do this they could mimic but they couldn't stop anything that the hand of the Lord meant to do I think of 1 Kings 18 25-29 where they're on the mount and the servants of Baal are crying out and they have two altars and of course the prophet has an altar and then Baal has an altar for him and they made an agreement that Whoever's God brought fire down and lit the altar, that was the living God. And as they sat there and they cried out, these prophets of Baal, they said, Bring fire. The prophet Elijah sat over there and he says, Cry a little louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's off on a journey. Just cry a little louder. And obviously it was mockery. There was no one there to hear them. They weren't serving a living God. Nothing happened. Though they cut themselves. Though they cried, though they shouted, though they made a big scene, there was no answer. And then Elijah poured water on the altar, on the sacrifice, on the wood, and twelve buckets full, and prayed and said, Lord, send fire that the people would see that you're the living God. He is the God that lives. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. I do want to turn there briefly. Psalm 115, 1 through 8. 
Scripture says this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory. For Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake, wherefore should the heathen say, Where now is their God? But our God is in heaven. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And God spoke. It is only the living that speak. And God is the only living God with a voice. False gods are deaf, dumb, and dead. They are no more than an expression of a sin-darkened, fallen man's heart. The magicians of Egypt, as we said, attempted to cover these things, but they could not do anything new. They could not even stop what God had done. In this, God asserted His supremacy over the false gods of Egypt. And in such, He asserted dominance and supremacy over all false gods, yea, even over creation. What can a dead God do? And God spoke. This speaks to the fact that God lives not as a plant or as an animal. You may say a tree lives or a flower lives or an animal lives, but God is not like just something merely like that. He's a person. He, he has a being. He has thoughts. He's able to speak and to think and to act according to His own will, according to His own purpose, according to His own desires. Here we see that God spake. Well, what did He speak? He spake all these words. This law. The Decalogue. The Ten Commandments. This was not the invention of man. This was not merely a word spoken by Moses that he had come up with. That This would be a good idea for the people to follow. But this was the word spoken by God. As all divinely inspired Scripture, this law is authoritative. This is not the Ten Suggestions. This is not the ten preferences. This is not the ten ideas that might make you feel a little better. These are the ten commandments of the Most High God. And they are our objective standard of righteousness. And they reveal to us our sin. And they condemn us rightly and justly before God. Number two, He is the God who liberates Considering first that He is the God who lives, it logically follows that He acts. If He lives, He does things. He acts. He does things. He's not a radio that talks. You don't press a button, He talks, and that's it. God lives freely and acts freely. And in this verse, God reveals to us and reminds us that He liberates His people. However, before making any mention of this, He Reminds of people who it is that's doing the liberating. Look with me in verse number 2. I am the Lord. He alone is the covenant God of His people. He is Jehovah. 
Jehovah is the self-existent God. The one to whom all creatures owe their existence. He is life. He gives life and He takes life as He pleases. Because of His promise to Abraham, He preserved the people through these 400 and some years of being in Egypt from Joseph even until the Exodus. I am the Lord. And this He draws the heart and mind to reverence and holy fear without even considering yet one blessing from God. Every creature without exception They're bound and obligated to worship Him. Every person everywhere ought to worship this God. Ought to praise and serve this God. And it is their great sin and folly who do not. Furthermore, if we are obedient, we aren't to pat ourselves on the back. We are unprofitable servants. We're only doing what we're obligated to do. Why? All praise, honor, and glory is due alone to Christ and to God, the Lord. The inclusion of this title in the text brings us to look at God with reverence and humility and fear. And oftentimes we try to think of uh, God's attributes and categories, although He is who He is at all times, no matter what. We think of His attributes of greatness and His attributes of goodness. This name brings our mind to His attributes of greatness that He is awesome and he's terrible and great and mighty and powerful he's self-existent there's no one else that is self-existent he came from nothing and nothing will come after him except that which he creates calvin said it this way and surely it was necessary that first of all the right of the legislator should be established lest what he should choose to command should be despised or contemptuously received In these words, then, God speaks to procure reverence to Himself before He prescribes the rule of a holy and righteous life. Here it is, He's laying it out, who it is that's about to speak. And of course we see not only just the first commandment, but all who it is that's telling us these things. And we see these big attributes of the greatness of God, and it would bring our heart into a holy fear and a holy reverence and, and we think back as they're standing there and the thick cloud of smoke and the darkness and this mighty act of God and the, the threat of death if they approach unto Him is enough to put fear in any man's heart. But then we see these sweet words, Thy God. And we know that in Christ we can approach unto God by grace. The Bible says, I am the Lord thy God. Having established this reverence and humility, and He reminds us that He is thy God. Not only just this God that we should fear, and we should fear Him, and not just this God that we should be uh, serving and obligated to, but He's the God that loves His people. Thy God. He reminds us of the sovereign and free grace He has bestowed upon us to those that are in Christ. He is thy God. There's a special relationship that God has with His people that He does not have with others. This mighty and sovereign God is thy God. If so be, you're in Christ. This is the hope and assurance of all the elect of God through every tribe, tongue, nation, and language 
And thanks to God's grace, the sinless life of Christ, His substitutionary death, and the resurrection of Christ in victory. He is the true and better Adam. This brings us to the latter portion of the verse properly. See, all this is established to get us in the right focus of who it is that liberates. But He is the God that liberates because we see which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, which brought thee out of the house of bondage. Not only is He this great God, not only is He our God, but He's brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of a bondage. God, by multiple shows of His own power and supremacy, brought the people out. There was no way to attribute to this to some kind of chance or happenstance or just luck, if you will, or the work of a mere man. God alone did these things. And He will receive the glory. Jehovah God is the mighty God who liberates His people from bondage. What joy. What joy. Did, did He liberate these people because they, were, uh, they would be able to pay Him back somehow? Does He liberate the sinner because they're able to offer something to Him that He needs? No, He's Jehovah. He's in need of nothing. Why does He do this? For His own glory. Not because you've deserved it. Not because you've worked something up. Not because you're better than someone else. What joy to be redeemed of the Lord from slavery. What a happy place it is to be to go from the slavery of sin, the slavery of bondage, and to be a happy slave of Christ. A happy slave of Christ. This idea of being a slave to Christ doesn't seem very... Like, it seems like it contradicts that we've been brought out of bondage, but oh, what a happy slavery it is. There's a story of this man who was walking along in the street one day and he heard this auction of some slaves and he heard there was this young girl that was about to be auctioned off. And of course he's listening in, he perks his ears up and he listens. And these men that were about to buy her are talking about these vile things that they're going to do to her. He was a rich man, he went over, he said, I outbid everybody I'll pay whatever you're asking bought her out of the slavery took her and took her to the house and said listen here's your freedom I don't you know just go on live your life you know what she did she said I have nowhere else I'd rather be than right here with the one who purchased me and that is us if you've been bought from the slavery of sin there's no better place in your life Yeah, you've been set free from sin. You don't want to go out in the world. You want to be right here with He who purchased you. You want to be at His feet, worshiping Him. You want to be in His service. And what a happy day that the Lord brought us out. What's a shadow in the Old Testament is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, We may not have lived in actual slavery to a worldly power, But we were slaves in a more terrible sense. We were slaves to sin, shame, and self until Jesus redeemed us. He purchased us in His own death under the wrath that we deserved. There is victory in the living God who liberates His people. He has not just made salvation possible, but rather He has saved His people from their sins. 
and it's done completely in Him. We see in the text, and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Child of God, you need not live in fear or defeated in the bondage of sin. As the brother talked about this morning, we're saved from the penalty of sin at the moment of conversion, and we are right now being saved from the power of sin, and one day we shall be saved from its awful presence. If you are His, though you are a great sinner, He's a far greater Savior. He is the sure Savior. Is your heart not eternally grateful as you consider this thought that though you've done everything that you should not be His and everything against Him and even as we read through the law you've done all these things against God and yet Him knowing that He put that on Christ and He paid the penalty for you. Is your heart not eternally grateful? As we consider this morning the God who lives, the God who liberates we also see the God who legislates. This living God who liberates His people has every right as Jehovah to legislate. Not just those that He saves, but those that are lost. He has every right to legislate because of who He is. His act of grace to you only further obligates your service. However, it does not gain you favor or mercy. Mercy alone is in Jesus Christ. Look what He says. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Seems easy to understand most of this, but for clarification, let's consider before me. It's not this idea that God's okay as long as Baal is second place and as long as Moloch is third place, but when he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, it's in before my face, and since God is omnipresent, there's no place in this world for false religion false gods, false idols. It's not acceptable. In fact, it's utterly unacceptable. There's no place in your closet, no place in the hidden places of your life. God is still there and He will be worshipped as first in your life and there will be no other. Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. Thou shalt have none. In fact, the opposite applies. What it says in condemning this act of having other gods, it says, Thou shalt have me alone as God. God is a jealous God. He's jealous over the praise of His people. He's jealous over the adoration of His people. He's jealous over the worship of His people. He is jealous over the love of His people. He's jealous over their service. He's jealous over their lives. He's jealous over their commitment. Why? Because of who He is. He's the only one that can be jealous and not a a strike of sin be in his heart. He will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42 and verse number 8, I think that would be proper to read here. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. I won't read it now for sake of time and staying in this text, but go home and read that. It's talking about Christ and His work as mediator. God will not allow other gods. Notice how this is commandment number one. Notice the placement 
of this glorious commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's not second. It's not tenth. It's number one. This this place being number one speaks to its importance. If you get this right, it's easier to get the rest right. But if you miss this, you're going to miss everything else that follows. In Matthew 22.38, we see that Jesus talking of this, He says, and I'll read that for you. Matthew 22 and verse 38. He says of this commandment, this is the first and great commandment. What is it? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Of course, he was asked, What is the greatest commandment? And what he was doing was he was summarizing the first four, that the first four commands from God here point to our relationship to God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not commit idolatry. Uh, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain and remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And he was summarizing those. And he's saying of these four that if if you want to follow this, then love the Lord your God with all your soul and strength and mind and all that's within you. And he said, this is the first and great commandment. I ought to give greatest attention to the first and greatest commandment. Examine your heart. Who or what is most important in your life? If you've placed something before God, repent today. Don't hesitate. Think of the context that this was written in. The people just came out of Egypt. And Egypt served a multitude of gods. And now for 400 years from Joseph to Moses now, they're living around these pagans that are serving Ra and Pharaoh and Heket and all these multiple gods. The god of fertility, the bull god Apis, Ra the sun god or Pharaoh the ultimate of the deities for them so called. They were around these things and it was very prevalent to them and God said thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not that they may mix them together. Not that these may be second place. What wise timing. What wise timing that God should give this command. As He's about to take the people into the land of Canaan who are also serving false gods. And their mind is about to be attacked by all these different false gods. Baal and Moloch who is killing, having people kill their babies. And they're about to be surrounded by these things. You say, surely after all that God has done, they wouldn't go to it. But sadly, as we read the Old Testament, they did time and time again. Is that our heart right now? Is that, is that our uh, motion of being? Is this our way of living? Are we serving the Lord today? And then Monday through Friday, we're serving the boss. And then Saturday, we're serving something else. No matter the name of the false gods, all these are just manifestations of the wickedness of a man's heart. They're creations of this darkened, depraved, vile heart. And so it doesn't have to be a god like Ra or like Baal or any of those. 
anything that takes the place of God in your life, you've made it a God. And it is a sin against God to create or worship false gods. There's simply no room for them among God's people. You cannot worship God or anything else. Everything else must be forsaken and despised. Isaiah 45 and verse number 18. I do apologize for not writing these down. Isaiah 45 and verse number 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He hath established it, He created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. He alone is God. This God that lives, this God that has liberated you, He gets to legislate how you are to live your life. And that's not legalism. That's obeying the God that you owe your life to. And don't let someone accuse you of legalism when you say a Christian ought not to act this way. You're honoring the God who saved you and the God who has created you and the God that you owe your entire life to. This is the living God. This is the God who gets to choose how His creatures to act. act. And we're not to question Him. And when things come along that maybe we didn't like them, that's just how it is. God be the glory. You may think that this verse applied then, but uh, it's pretty much irrelevant now. This law prohibits worshiping a faux Christian God as well. Or a misrepresentation of God. We're not permitted or given creative liberty to go through the Bible and say, I like this verse about God and I don't like this one. When we start going through God and picking and choosing, we're making a God unto ourselves after our own likeness that we want to worship. And we say, God, I don't care who you are, I'll worship you as I see fit. This is a prohibition against the worship of folk, Christian gods. I've heard people say that are Muslims. Well, Muslims come from Abraham, so... Allah is just the God that you serve and we're all serving the same God. That's a lie. I'll give you a very simple explanation. Two things that are different are not the same. Easy enough. You can see all throughout the Quran that it is not the God of the Bible. And though they've hijacked His name, He's not the same. They're serving a false God. The Jews who would deny the deity of Christ are not serving God. They say they're the synagogue of God, their synagogue of Satan, they deny the deity of His Son. This wicked religion of Catholicism who raises the Pope and says that the Pope is the Holy Father and the head of the church and the vicar of Christ, he directly blasphemes the Holy Trinity. God is the Holy Father. Christ is the head of His church. And the Holy Spirit is working in the earth for Christ. They worship Mary and saints. They worship the man of sin, the Pope. They worship priests, but they do not worship God and there is no fellowship with us in them. There's no fellowship between light and darkness. We are prohibited from saying things like Oprah. Oh, all roads lead to the Lord. On judgment day they will and then they'll lead to hell. 
But only one road leads to a right relationship with God and that is through Jesus Christ who liberates His people. We deny and avoid these those who have heretical and unbiblical views of Jesus Christ. No matter how nice they are. No matter if they're family. It doesn't matter. If you have a heretical view or an unbiblical view of Jesus, you are wrong. We don't have any liberty to switch what the Scripture says. And I heard a saying one time that the Bible is not really so hard to understand, it's just hard to swallow. We're not to serve money and healing like the Copelands of this world, the Benny Hens, the smiley Joel Osteen. Things are not a bed of roses. Things are not always happy-go-lucky. We don't serve those things, though. We serve God. And better it is to be in a shed or to be in the roadside or be in a homeless or to be in a prison or to be shipwrecked or to be beaten or to be mocked or ridiculed and to follow Christ than it is to have wealth and fame and glory and deny Him. This commandment prohibits that. And we ought not tiptoe around it. There's no room for our hearts to share affection and devotion and worship and praise with anything but God. I have enough things in my life that distract me. I don't need another. My heart needs to be focused on this God who saves, this God who lives, and this God who legislates my life. An idol or a false god does not only have to be an image you worship. You might not bow the knee to your employer. You might not bow the knee to your idol. But when it takes preeminence in your life, it pulls your attention from God. Lord, help us. Be that a sport. Be it a hobby. Be it a job. Be it a vehicle. Be it your own reputation. Oh, help us, Lord. Be it a house. Be it a toy. Be it a video game. Be it a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or a sibling. Now, not all these things are inherently wicked. But if my wife takes the place of God, I've made her an idol in my life. And my marriage will not be so good as it is when I love God supremely. If my children are my idol, I will not father them as if God is the love of my heart. If your school is your idol, you will not study as if God was your chief desire. I heard a story of a man and a woman who owned a business. Now this was back east. They owned a business and they went to a pastor friend of mine and they were going to his church and they said, Pastor, would you pray for us? Um, We've got a job and we're kind of hurting. We'd like to make more money and if we make more money, we'll be able to tithe more. Now those things inherently wicked, you know. Give him the benefit of the doubt that he really just wanted to tithe more. But wanting to have a good job and your career and this business that you own to provide for your family, those are, those are good things. You, in fact, you are commanded to take care of your family. Well, preacher prayed for him, church prayed for him, and the business started growing. Praise the Lord. You know, that was good. He was so happy. He was praising the Lord and excited. Well, then he started missing few services here and there, Wednesday nights. Well, brother, I couldn't close the store. I was just so busy. 
and then Saturdays. He was working Monday through Saturday at this point. He said, well, I'm not going to open on Sunday, but then he'd start missing a Sunday here and there because he said, Preacher, I'm just so tired, and I don't get to spend time with my family, and I just bought a new boat, and I wanted to go out on the lake and spend time with my kids. Buying a boat, going on the lake, spending time with your kids and your wife, great things, but not on the Lord's Day and when you're taking away the worship of God. And you see how things that started out that wouldn't have been inherently wicked. Right. Now he's made an idol in his life. And he's in violation of the first and even second commandment. The third and the fourth. I mean, he's really hitting them all. <laughs> Guard your hearts. Not all things that are uh, end up wicked started that way. Listen, your ministry for the Lord if it becomes your ministry and not God is the chief desire of your heart, your ministry becomes an idol. We've got to guard our hearts. It's good to get married. It's good to have kids. It's good to be a family man. It's good to have a job. It's good to go to school. Great. In its place. After God. Thou shalt have no other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods. It's plain, simple, easy English. Thou shalt have no other gods. And so, why do we wrestle with this? Pride. Self-centeredness. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Listen to this. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who mind earthly things. Is your God your lusts and your desires and your pleasures? Friend, I tell you under the authority of the Scripture that Christ must have preeminence in your life. There is no room for others. There's no room for God on Sunday and then you live how you please the rest of the week. It's God first. This, this God who lives, this God who uh, liberates you is the God who has the right to say, you must worship me and me alone. I'll end with this. Colossians verse number one, or chapter number 1. Verse number 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom we have redemption through His blood even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or things, or all things, or, or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. Friend, I ask you to search your heart this morning. 
you know he lives. He's given himself many witnesses. Even today, you may not have seen the Red Sea part. You may not have seen these great miraculous things happen. You can look outside. and The Bible says that your conscience knows that there is a God. You know he lives. Has he liberated you? Are you his? Are you in Christ this morning? As we read the law, does it break your heart? Does it burden your heart that you are a sinner against God? Good. Repent and believe upon Christ. And He will save you. And He is a sure Savior. He does not make it possible. He saves sinners. And remember this, friend. Remember this, brother, sister. Everywhere you go, God has the right to tell you what to do. Seek to obey Him. Don't be content with half-hearted devotion. Seek after Him. Throw away your idols. If something comes up in your life that is taking your thought away from God, forsake it and despise it and come to Christ. What better? We're about to come into communion next week. And and what a sweet time that is where we have communion together and fellowship together with the Lord and we remember His death until He comes. Friend, there's no greater joy in this life than when God is first. Everything else will fit where it needs to. Just serve God.